The following podcast is a part of the Spin Studio Network. Hello, sunshine, and welcome to She Was the Fire. It's time to stop dancing in the dark. Let's start your fire and ignite your spark. Welcome to episode 13. I'm Courtney Mangan, in case you are new here. And today I'm talking about all the things I have to unlearn. So the things that I have been taught from a very young age, you know, that sort of thing like, um, you know, when your parents tell you that you can't drive with a light on in the car at night because it's illegal, and then you grow up and you realize that that's just a lie, that kind of thing. And also some more serious stuff as well. So firstly, let's get into what I've been up to for the week. So it was a long weekend here in Queensland and that was on Friday was a public holiday. And so I saw this as like a opportunity to maybe take a little bit longer for myself. So I came up with this plan, which you would have seen if you follow me on Insta story, but I'm having a problem at the moment where immunotherapy is really kicking my butt, which I've told you guys before. I'm not sure what it is. Um, I've had all my vitamins and levels and stuff checked. And so I'm taking a bunch of vitamins to kind of counteract that. And I am sleeping sufficient amounts. I'm not sleeping like a lot. I'm getting like my seven hours of sleep. I can't really seem to be getting beyond that, but I am getting the seven hours, which is sufficient. Um, but no matter really what I do and how much I just stay at home and rest, I'm not really getting any more energy. Um, and I just feel like I've been hit by a bus all the time. And it's a side effect of immunotherapy, obviously. Uh, a lot of people on the forums discussed this. When I started getting immunotherapy initially, I went on a lot of forums just to kind of see like what I was going to be in for. It's like you might have gathered now I love being on a forum, <laughs> um, like closed Facebook groups. I like to educate myself about what I can expect. And one of the things everyone was kind of saying was that they take – they don't work full time as much anymore, but they were more jobs where people were like – nurses and retail workers that were on their feet. And so I thought, you know, like I'm sitting down all the time, that wouldn't really be an issue. It hasn't really been an issue up until now. I am finding that I'm getting this eye twitch thing that I can't seem to like fix. I'm just really lethargic. It gets to like, I don't know, two o'clock in the afternoon and my brain just doesn't work the way that it used to. Like I just can't seem to create like any creative thoughts. It takes me double the time to do tasks than it normally does. And my memory is just completely shot. Like my short, short, short term memory. Like I'll be like, oh, I need to buy that book. And I'll pick up my phone to like look for the book. And then I can't remember why I picked up my phone or I'll go to the fridge and can't remember why I walked to the fridge or I'll walk to Sam's office to tell him something. And I can't remember why I walked to his office. So it's like that really, really short term memory stuff that I just can't seem to hold on to in my brain. And I then sort of retrace my steps, like, okay, what what made me think to go to Sam's office? And I, I end up getting the memory back a few minutes later, but I'm having to kind of like really, really think really hard to try and remember everything. And, you know, that's stuff to do with stress. And I don't know if it's just like my body's under this extra stress because of the immunotherapy that it's reacting this way. But the doctors have said that the deeper you get into this treatment, the more the side effects can start to uh, you know, pop their ugly head up and I'm halfway through now. So this is now the sort of time when they look for like immunotherapy, not immunotherapy, sorry, autoimmune diseases and really bad side effects that can occur and they're usually a bit later in the game. So 
I'm thankful that the only side effect that I'm getting is like memory loss and tiredness. But I had this plan, long story short. Wow, Courtney. So I had this plan that maybe I'm really tired. It's not necessarily physically that it's more mentally. So because I, I work every night and every weekend. Yes, it's not like 100% go, go, go sitting at a desk. But the minute I get home, I cook my dinner and then I sit down and I put the TV on and I grab my laptop and I'm working on things that I can multitask on. So I might be looking for social content. I might be searching through Pinterest. I might be making social collateral, things like that. Um, and or doing like a bit of research for an upcoming podcast, looking for which song I want as a fire starter, stuff like that. But I'm always doing something to do with work. I'm never just sit down and watch a TV show. The only time I'm not working is if I'm out with people. So, you know, if I'm out at the shops, I'm out at lunch, I'm out hanging out with my friends, I'm obviously not working then. But if I'm at home, that's all I really do. It's I love working. I love thinking creatively for this podcast and thinking of new ideas for my business and getting on top of things. So it doesn't seem like a chore to me. But I also realize that in every quiet moment, like when I'm putting makeup on or when I'm cooking, I'm also listening to informative podcasts and I'm listening to educational books or I'm doing courses. And so there's like not a minute where my brain isn't kind of switched off. And so I thought maybe I need to get a little bit of mental rest. So I had this plan that on Friday, the public holiday, I would work a full eight hour day on my own personal stuff. So I write blogs for a skin cancer company the skin cancer website in America. And I film video content for them too. So I said, I'm going to do all of that. And I'm going to do a bunch of scheduling for She Was a Fire, a bunch of planning for the podcast, going to get that all out of the way. And then on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, I'm going to do nothing. And I'm going to take Monday off as well. And that's what I did. So there were a couple of instances here and there where I had to do a couple of things, you know, like some of the talent was messaging me and like I had to do a few things on Monday just to prepare for the week. But for the most part, I would say that was maybe all up like two hours of my time over the space of three days. So it wasn't very much, but I basically just sat down, watched television, didn't do anything else, went for walks, went to the grocery store, didn't listen to a single informative podcast. I listened to um, an audio book. I read a book and um, yeah, went to the beach and just relaxed. I found it really hard to be honest um, because it felt like essentially time wasted in my brain, but I kept saying to myself, like, it's not time wasted if you're going to have more energy and it's going to be worth it in the long run. And so I just kept sticking to it. I found that I've trained myself now to be able to watch a show and work at the same time so that when I was just watching a show, I was like, wow, I'm bored. So um, that was really hard. But it sounds like a total first world problem. And it's like, wow, you're such a whinger. You got to sit down and do nothing. I don't get to do that. I've got kids or I can't afford you that, whatever. I know it sounds like I'm whinging, but um, it's just not how I normally operate. And it is a luxury, but it's not something that is a luxury to me, I suppose. I find that spending my time productively growing and learning is what I love doing. Now, if you saw me a year ago, this would be exactly what I would do all the time. Um, But now I just can't seem to switch my brain off from like, thinking of creative things and doing, you know, well, anyway, you get the idea. So at the end of the day, I didn't do anything. I did what I set out to do. I spent the whole, you know, the long weekend, just a lot of me time, not working. I felt like I could have gotten so much stuff done. So that was a little bit frustrating. And I don't feel 
like I have much more energy, <laughs> which is the upsetting thing. I thought that maybe this was what was going to work, but it didn't really. But I, I still felt better. You know, if I had worked all weekend, I could be in a much worse position. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just wake up never feeling like I've had enough sleep. And on the weekend I was like, no, you can sleep in if you want to, Courtney. And I still didn't like sleep in much longer. Immunotherapy does, um, make it harder to get sleep. A lot of people report that and I'm pretty lucky to be able to even get the seven hours that I get. A lot of people have very bad broken sleep from their immunotherapy. It just makes you really wired. Um, And I've been lucky to be able to even get the seven hours in. But yeah, it didn't really work, but it was a nice try. I, um, yeah, I still enjoyed sort of being able to just take that time and it did kind of show to me I probably do need to do a little bit more of that. Um, So if you are someone like me that has issues with downtime and relating that to sort of not being productive, maybe that's something that you also need to work on. I just want to be productive all the time and sometimes not doing anything can also be what you need. So yeah, I think maybe I was a little bit ambitious to think that three days was just going to be fix all my problems and maybe I need to just set aside a couple of nights a week where I do that as well. So I'm like constantly recharging. Um, or maybe I'm just going to feel tired for the next, you know, six months and it is what it is because it's a life-saving treatment and that's what I've got to do. Anyway, so that is the long-winded way of me telling you what I've been up to. Um, yeah, it was um, a nice weekend. It was definitely nice not to be at the office for four days. It was so good to actually have like um, so often, you know, like I have immunotherapy every second week and then, you know, you have the weekend that you're kind of recovering and I didn't have that this week, like I didn't have that shock to the system of immunotherapy. It was like a nice Friday off and then, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and it was just like, you know, a nice time. And I got to hang out and do have some lunches and dinners and stuff. And that was nice too with friends and family. But anyway, and before we kick off the rest of the episode, I just want to remind you that sharing is caring. And so if you would please share this podcast with a friend or family member that you think would benefit from my content, that would be greatly appreciated. Tag me on Instagram, tag your friends on my Instagram, tell them verbally, whatever it is, spread the word. I would really appreciate it. I've seen a lot of you already doing that, tagging your friends in the comments section of my She Was The Firegram and also tagging me in your Insta stories. And it is greatly appreciated. Also want to let you know that there is a private Facebook group or a closed Facebook group for She Was The Fire. If you want to join in on the conversation, head over there and I will let you in. All right, let's get into the fire starter for today's episode. And this week I'm going with a musical and it's wicked. We're going with Defying Gravity. So I thought this was a really good song because obviously gravity is something that we learn about. And then Defying Gravity is like defying something that we've already learned. And this whole concept is about unlearning things. So here are some of the lyrics. Something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing, too late to go back to sleep. It's time to trust my instincts, close my eyes and leap. It's time to try defying gravity. I think I'll try defying gravity and you can't pull me down. If you haven't seen Wicked, do yourself a favour. Well, actually, you can't really see it, can you? Because there's no shows on at the moment for COVID. But after COVID, you should go check it out. Anyway, let's ignite today's topic. Five things I have to unlearn. So I sat down to write this episode and I wrote down a whole bunch of different things and I kind of chose the ones that I thought were like the most prominent that I had to learn and I think would give the most value with me sharing them. So that's what we're getting into. And number one is crying is a weakness. So this is something that 
I don't ever specifically being remember being taught from a young age, but it's definitely a kind of mentality that's been through um, my family and friends and that where it's like, you know, sort of smile through things, I guess. So it's never been explicit, but it's been something that has been modelled for me. Neither of my parents are very big criers or emotional people during hard times. Um, and so that was something that I guess was modelled for me. And I've always prided myself on actually not being a crier. So it wasn't just that I thought it was a weakness. I thought that not crying was actually a strength as well. So like during sad movies or even when like, you know, when you're a teenager and you're fighting with your friends and sometimes your friends will end up crying, I would never cry. It's even a joke with all of my friends that, oh, if Courtney's crying, it must be something really bad. Um, and so like if they pick up the phone, you know how like when you have, you know, something bad goes wrong and you pick up the phone to your friend and you can hear they're crying down the end of it. With me, if that's what happens with my friends, they're like really like, wow, someone's died because it's usually something quite extreme. Um, so that's just something that I've always been like. I don't really ever remember a time where I haven't thought of crying as a weakness. And so over time, because I sort of kept thinking that emotions, I guess, in a way, are something that are weak that actually became part of my personality and I no longer wanted to cry. So it wasn't just that, you know, I'm hiding my emotions with sad things or like I'm, it's not like I'm fighting back tears. I don't actually get the tears. Like I feel like in my head, I think like, oh, I have the strength to not actually get to that emotional state. And it's something that I'm starting to realize that that's not necessarily true. One is not strong and one is not weak. Um, and so I'm not quite sure exactly like why it happened. As I said, it was never something that was explicit, but it is something that has been modeled for me. And I've sort of sat down to try and think about like, how did this happen? And <laughs> when I sort of said, started this podcast uh, episode, because obviously I'm not going to just say five things. I have to dive deep into like where this started. And so, um, you know, I looked at all of my friends and all of them were female, you know, my closest friends are female. And they're all big criers. Like in my head, I'm like, oh, they're such criers. I'm not sure if they're actually big criers or they're just normal amounts of emotions. But to me, it's like, oh, they cry over everything, you know, and they're crying over movies. They're crying over sad things. They're crying when they're feeling like, you know, stressed, like just lots of tears. And so I really thought like, wow, I've, I've always been surrounded by a lot of women who are crying. Like how did I form into this way, I guess. And Sam's very similar as well. I, I cry more than Sam, to be honest, but he's not a crier either. And I think that I'm trying to like narrow it down. And I think that from a very young age, I was into sports. So I played golf and I had a scholarship from a young age. So I would practice several times a week, play lots of games and golf of, ga sorry, games of golf every single week. So it wasn't just like once a week, it was like multiple times after school and on the weekends. And that was a male coach. My dad, I used to play with him. I used to play with all of my dad's friends. I grew up around like all the juniors who were all men at the golf club. I would play hours and hours and hours on a golf course with men. I spent a majority of my time growing up as a young woman around men in a social setting. Obviously at school, I was with my female friends, but then outside of those hours, I was a majority around men. And I think that, you know, from a young age, when you're around that many men, and we know that as a whole, men are taught 
a lot more than what women are that emotions are not for you. You know what I mean? Like men shouldn't cry or like grow some balls or whatever that horrible rhetoric is. Um, it's like there's – I think that I then – because I never wanted to be seen as a girl when I was around the boys. I always wanted them to see me as their equal. And so I always felt like me having too many emotions was them clearly identifying me as a girl. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, she's on a period or whatever that stupid shit is that people say. And so I think that I kind of went the other way where I tried to be like non-emotional, no feelings, n- not never like, you know, upset because I didn't want to be seen as in my eyes at that time, like, weaker because I had emotions and therefore it was identifying me as a girl because girls were always crying and they're on their period and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, and also like I used to watch movies with my dad and he would make me watch Rocky and Rambo and Indiana Jones. And I would sit down and watch the football with my dad and we watched the Broncos every single week. And I watched a lot of golf on TV and my family was like really into the soccer. So I've been around just so much male dominated content um, where emotions are not really encouraged, I suppose. I think that that's starting to change now, thankfully. But back when I was younger, it certainly was not the conversation that was being had where it was like okay for men to have emotions. And so I think because I was always trying to fit into this male-dominated situation, it kind of made me a little bit more, um, I don't know, like emotionless in that sense um, because I, I wanted to be – one of the boys, I guess. Um, even through my cancer journey, I really didn't cry that much. The only time I really would get upset was when I would have to say out loud and tell somebody else. And so my sort of um, pain for having to tell someone else that I know is going to be quite painful for them to hear, hey, I have very serious cancer, that was when I would get upset. But I never really took moments at the house like alone and cried myself to sleep or burst into tears in the shower. It's just not really something I've ever done. I don't work through my feelings and thoughts with tears. And so it's sort of like a, I don't know, like a just get on with it kind of mentality that I've always sort of had instilled in me from a young age. And I think it isn't till recently, like the current generation that has started to change this mentality. And I think that you think about your parents and your grandparents, they've always been talking about that like tough, tough, what is it, like stiff upper lip kind of thought process. And like a lot of my family, my mum's side are all British too, which is, you know, that kind of English mentality is like, you know, you it's not appropriate to talk about emotions or money or stat- status, you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, it's not appropriate chatter. But um, yeah, so from a young age, I think that I've really had these people that I've surrounded myself with it's been a priority to be emotionless, I suppose. And even from a young age with my career role models. So my dad was always a boss at his job and my uncles were also the same as my dad, high-powered male leaders in their businesses or in their field. And even my boss at my first-time job, um, he used to have a sign on the door that would say, like, leave your baggage and emotions at the door. Like, literally, he would say that. And so I all, also I all the men that I was – all the people I was modelling myself as a leader of were all men. And so even now in my workplace, even the other day, I find myself looking at someone crying in the workplace as a weakness – 
you know, if someone's like a leader and they're crying, I see that as like a very negative thing. And I remember hearing an interview with Julia Gillard recently who talked about her last day in office as prime minister. And she said that when she was like making her final speech, she had to actually think about the fact that she couldn't get too emotional because that would be seen as a sign of weakness and like a sore loser on her final day, even though she was just emotional about the things that she had endured as a female or the things that she'd been able to accomplish for the country. And she sort of was overwhelmed with that kind of emotion. It wasn't about the fact that she was weak or that like she was a sore loser or anything like that. It's like it's it's it would have been seen as just a bad thing that she had emotions. And it's the same with, you know, Hillary Clinton. I remember in 2008, there was a whole article in the New York Times about how when she was running for president that she cried because she got so passionate during a speech talking about her concern for America. And people wrote that like, one, it was manipulative and she was trying to manipulate us. Or two, she was like weak and you can't have a leader that's going to cry. And there were whole articles like in the New York Times about it. Everybody was covering it. And it just kind of shows you that like, crying in the workplace is not allowed either. And so I definitely have that mentality that I need to somehow unlearn. And I try really to make sure that I check myself. And I think this is definitely a very big Australian thing too, to really just like get on with the job. Um, And so I, I have to check myself. Like I think that I would say 80% of the staff in this building have at one point or another cried to me at some point. Um, and quite often in the one-on-one chats that we have for the month, I've had tears when they're feeling like, you know, they've got stuff going on in their personal life and you know, that's affecting their day job or whatever it is, or like, you know, they are unhappy with things, whatever it is. It's not usually about their actual work that they're crying, to be clear. Um, but it's, you know, people get emotional all the time or maybe something bad has happened in their family life, whatever it is. And I don't know why, but I get this like, twitch where it's like, oh God, like keep your emotions together at work. And it's just always something that's been instilled in me. And it's just like, why? Why can't that person just be upset for a few minutes in this one-on-one chat with me? I can console them and then they can move forward. They've let their emotions out and this is how they're processing them. Obviously, if they're sitting at their desk the whole day weeping, that's not an ideal scenario. But like a few minutes where we're just having a chat about what's going on in their life, how they're feeling overwhelmed and stressed because their personal life is, you know, seeping into their day life or whatever, work life, whatever it is. Why is that seen as a bad thing? You know, and I, I don't know the answer, how to fix it, but it's definitely something that I need to start looking at. And I don't think necessarily if you're not someone who's a big cry, I don't think it's a good or a bad thing. Definitely not. I don't think that, I think this is in me now and I'm never going to be a big crier. However, the way I perceive tears, I think needs to change. And I need to realize that it doesn't necessarily mean it's a weakness. And just because someone's not crying doesn't mean it's a strength. And sometimes not crying actually can show that you're not actually processing your emotions properly and you're able to feel the emotion. I don't think that that's what's happening with me. Um, I do think I'm quite good at processing my emotions and just tears isn't really one of the byproducts of that. But for some people, it can be quite a warning sign of things that are, you know, not quite right. So I really need to reassess that and that's something that I need to unlearn. I will say though, as a side note, The exception to that rule is joy. I have a really hard time feeling with joy as an emotion and I fight back tears when I'm overwhelmed with happiness. So if I go to a concert and my favorite songs gets played, like the minute I hear it, I'm welling up. 
I'm like one of those people that's like, I'm just so overwhelmed with how happy I am that my favorite song is on. Or like if, you know, um, for instance, Queensland wins State of Origin, I well up, you know, like I just like there's countless TV shows and movies where something amazing happens and my character gets like something that they've, my favorite character, something amazing happens to them and I'm like welling up. So joy, overwhelming joy. If I watch videos of like baby announcements on YouTube where people are telling their family that they're pregnant, I get so like I, I don't like ball my eyes out. That's never going to be what I'm doing, but I well up. And those joy is where I definitely get emotional. And so that is one thing. But um, yeah, when it comes to like sad, angry, overwhelmed, stressed, that kind of emotion, I'm not crying. And it's actually funny because I think about, again, I'm trying to look at who things were modeled off me and I'm not sure if my dad, I don't think my dad listens to this podcast, but my mom does. So she'll be able to like confirm this. But I've seen from my dad from a very young age. My dad is also not a crier. I think I've seen him cry like not even a handful of times. Like one time was um, like when I went to Europe when I was 17 with an open-ended ticket and I was like, see ya. Um, And then, yeah, I think there were like a couple of other like major points in my life that there's been some tears, you know, when people have passed away, things like that. But other than that as a whole, my dad is not really a crier. However, He does the same thing when we're watching TVs and movies or like really happy moments. I look at him and I see him getting overwhelmed with joy and like welling up a little bit. I remember the day that Australia won a game in the Soccer World Cup. If anyone in my family is listening, they'll be upset that I said Soccer World Cup. Like it should be Football World Cup because we're a a football family. We don't call soccer soccer. We call it football, but just for the listeners so you know, um, Australia had won a game. And my dad was so emotional because he was just so happy. So I think it's really funny that it's clear that I really modeled my style of emotions off the males in my life because my dad does get overwhelmed with joy and that's the only time that he kind of shows those emotions. And um, But then when it comes to the, the flip side, there's not really any tears. So I thought that was interesting when I sat down to think about this. I was like, hey, my dad does that too. So I thought that was funny. Anyway, so number one, that was that tears are a weakness. I need to unlearn that. Number two, and this is quite a serious one and I don't want to like go into it too much because I think it's something that everybody needs to learn for themselves. But the thing I need to unlearn is that I don't see colour. Naively, this is something new that I have to unlearn. And up until very recently, I thought that saying I don't see colour, all lives matter, that kind of stuff um, meant that I was just saying I don't judge people based on the colour of their skin. But something that I've learned that's really important is to always be learning more about things. I never want anyone to think that I'm like a really closed book. I am someone who is very opinionated, but I also like to think that I'm someone that is open-minded with my opinion. So once I believe something, I'm very passionate about it, but I am also open to learning new things when I hear that something I believed might be wrong. And I think that it is important to be always learning and understanding things that you believe to make sure that like it still stands up, you know? Um, And so when this, the Black Lives Matter movement really took over on Instagram earlier this year, I've really made an effort to try to educate myself more foolishly. I thought that being anti-racist was just meant not being racist, you know, like anti-racist and racist were like the opposite of each other. But now I know that that's not actually what being an ally to the black community means and that I needed to learn more. 
And I, as I said, I don't want to go into it too in depth because it's something that I'm still learning. And I think it's important that everybody educate themselves on this topic. But basically the idea of colorblindness, you know, and how that actually, if you say like, I don't see color, that actually denies the lived experiences of other people. And by me saying, I don't see race, and just simply putting my head in the sand, that, that doesn't actually do anything and that doesn't make real change and that doesn't, you know, we have to acknowledge the ugly and uncomfortable truths of racism. And so I kind of see it like this, like say your friend, I think some people have a hard time with understanding this like all lives matter and I don't see race kind of concept. So it's kind of like if your friend was being treated unfairly, right, black, white, whoever your friend is, doesn't matter, if your friend was being treated unfairly and you saw someone doing that to your friend, like you're standing there and someone's being nasty to your friend or they're being treated unfairly and you just stand there and you don't say anything because it's actually not your place, it's not your place to get involved, it's not your issue that they're actually dealing with, sure, you actually weren't the one doing it, you're not the one treating them badly, so you're not in the wrong but you also stood by and watched something horrible happen to your friend. So that's not really being a supportive friend. So that's kind of how I see now being an ally to the black community. And one of my favorite quotes of all time from Edmund Burke is the only thing for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. And I really feel like that that's something that I've continued to think about a lot recently about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm learning more about what white privilege means. And I'm trying to unlearn what I thought anti-racism was. And so that has been like a really important thing for me to unlearn recently. Um, and I'm trying to really educate myself. I'm listening to lots of interviews with prominent black people. Um, I'm listening to lots of podcasts. I'm reading lots of books by people with black voices, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm also trying to understand the language that I use. And, you know, up until recently, I thought black was the wrong thing to say and that you were supposed to say African-American. But now the more re research that I do, it's actually African-American is the wrong thing to say when you're referring to someone who's actually not even African-American and we're talking about everyone who's black is not African-American. So, you know, there's, there's all these different things that we're trying to learn. It's about educating yourself and it's not okay just to be like, oh, I, I don't hate black people. That's not enough anymore. And so I'm trying to unlearn all of those things that I thought that made me in the right or a good person or an ally of the black community, which in fact just made me someone who was standing idly by watching bad things happen and taking no action. So that's something that I had to unlearn. Number three, marriage and babies are the meaning of life. And this is actually a really hard one for me because obviously it's something that I've touched on before in this podcast. And um, it's become a lot more difficult for me in the last few months because I've had to deal head on with this issue. So, you know, for the last few years, I've been single. So marriage hasn't been on my brain and neither have babies. But with the whole cancer diagnosis, I had to go through fertility treatment to freeze my eggs. And then also I find out that I actually am not allowed to get pregnant for five years after my skin cancer diagnosis because a whole bunch of stuff. But I can't have kids for five years is basically where we're at. Um, and I have these eggs just frozen and sitting there if I ever want to use them in five years. So it's something that's sort of really to the forefront of my mind recently, whereas before it was just something that was in the back of my mind. And it's difficult for me because 
Marriage and children are not something that I have ever dreamed of. I don't have a secret Pinterest board with engagement ring pictures and wedding dresses and what the, the place setting would look like at my wedding when I know a lot of my friends do have that. I don't have a list somewhere of baby names that I want to use and I know a lot of my friends do have that as well. Um, I and it's so it's yeah like I, I don't even know really what to say because my head's so muddled about this topic and that that's really difficult being someone who's 34 years old and I don't have any desire to have children or to ha- or to get married and I get people on a regular basis at least once a week I'm asked am I seeing anyone am I on tinder am I lonely some kind of wording around you know like why are you single essentially. And I get asked about it all the time. And I, it's not even anything that comes into my brain. Like I don't, I don't even, I'm not lonely one bit, like not a single minute. The only moment in my whole life I have felt lonely was when I got my first cancer diagnosis, the first mole three years ago. And I had kind of just like I was getting my head around this whole thing and my mum and dad came over and my brother were there like after I'd just gotten the the news and my mum was very upset and I found myself obviously naturally trying to console my mum, put on a brave face for my family and my dad was doing the, oh, it's no big deal, it's all right and Sam's being like, it'll be fine, you know, and I'm trying to process my emotions to with all their emotions as well and, um, and then I went back into my room at the end of the night and I just thought to myself like, I don't have anyone that's like I can talk to alone here at night and that was like the only moment that I felt like maybe if I had a a boyfriend I would have someone that like I could just sit down and talk very honestly with because at that point when I had my first cancer diagnosis I wasn't as evolved as I am now where I was like very communicative sorry very communicative to my family and my friends telling them what I needed and I understood more of what I needed this time around the first time I didn't know what the fuck was going on I was terrified and I didn't know how to process what I was going through and I felt like I didn't have anyone that was not on my side. Everyone was obviously on my side, but just that one person that is just there to take care of you and your emotions solely. And so that was probably the only moment that I felt lonely. But other than that, I just don't feel like that at all. And so I sometimes think like, is that bad? Like, is something wrong with me? Am I supposed to be like my friends when they end up in, you know, they go through a breakup and then they're like, I need someone, you know, I need a new boyfriend. I don't have that. And I don't see a baby and get what people say is clucky. I don't feel anything like that. I never want to hold the baby. You know, when my friends call and they want the baby to be on the phone, it's like, oh, you know, talk to Courtney. It's like, hello, I'm just so uncomfortable. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just am so uncomfortable with it. And as I said in the previous episode, like it's probably because I haven't been around kids, but I've been around men <laughs> and I still haven't really had any huge desire to be married, you know? So, and interestingly, I come from like a perfect family makeup. Like my parents are still, you know, madly in love, still together. I, you know, I have a brother. So there's like the, the you know, the, what do they call it? Like the nuclear family, or have I just made that up? 
You know, so I didn't come from about, you know, quite often people who don't believe in marriage and things like that come from like broken families and things like that. And they've gone through divorce as a child and it was really difficult. And so it's, you know, scarred them as an adult. I haven't had any of those things. And so it's like, I don't understand why I don't have these feelings. But then also, I just feel like all the time something's wrong. You know, it's like, Am I gonna? I, I just get so scared that I'm gonna wake up in a week, in a year, in ten years, in thirty years, and go, "Fuck, I made a huge mistake. What was I doing? I should have had babies, and I should have been married." I'm just so worried that that's gonna happen. But it's really hard to like get on Tinder and Bumble and Hinge or all the places when your care factor is literally zero. It's hard to put so much effort into an online chat when you just don't even care. But then I'm like so worried that I will care one day because it's like society is telling me I'm supposed to care and that like I'm going to wake up. You know, I, I went to a baby shower recently and I, w- I wanted to talk about this on my Insta story actually and I held back because I didn't want anybody that was at the baby shower to feel uncomfortable because nobody had any ill will obviously and there were just mums there that were just speaking so highly of their children, which is beautiful. I love that obviously um, but the way in which they were talking was very much like when you have one, Courtney, you'll understand what we mean, like as though it's expected that I'll I'll have a baby for one and for two that like Every person that has a child, it's perfect from the minute you have it. And there's, we know that that's not true. Some people shouldn't have children. Um, and so there was like, I, I was so uncomfortable at moments at the baby shower because I felt like there was this judgment, not in a negative way, but in a way that's like, um, you know, these people are my friends and they love me. So definitely not in a negative way, but in a way that was like, you'll come around kind of thing. And it's like, but what if I don't come around? Do I just have a baby for the sake of it? Cause I'm supposed to, I don't know what to do, you know, and baby showers are very fucking confronting. And I never had any issues at baby showers until recently when all of a sudden this whole five year thing started to come into play. I can't have babies for five years. So now all of a sudden it's been taken out of my hands. It's no longer my decision. If I want kids or not, I can't have them for five years. Um, and so it's feeling very real now where it's like, well, did I want this? I don't know. And then there's also like I've had friends say like if you don't have kids, like what's your purpose in life? Literally had people say that right in front of me. And it's like I don't know. And then you hear people say like on their deathbed, people don't remember all of the Louis Vuitton bags they bought or the success they had in business. They think about their children and their loved ones, their husband or whatever. So then I'm like, well, what the fuck am I thinking on my deathbed? I don't know. And so I I don't know, like, am I supposed to unlearn this or do I need to learn that I am supposed to do this? This is a really confusing one for me. And I think at this point I have to unlearn that it's something that one day I'm going to wake up and want. And if that does happen, then so be it. But at the moment, I just don't think I can force dating someone and trying to have a baby. You know, I think that like, I just have to unlearn that this is my life and I don't have to do it the way that society necessarily thinks is what's right. And I don't have to listen to everything that my friends are saying about what they're loving in their life. It might not be for me. Not everything is for everybody. And so this is a really hard one. And I think I might do a whole episode on this, maybe with somebody else who chose not to have kids. My friend Belinda doesn't have any kids. And so maybe it's something I could talk to her about. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting one because there's just such an expectation on women that this is what our what is supposed to be our end goal in life. And I don't see that same expectation on men. Um, I don't see men being asked, you know, when are you having kids very often or why haven't you had kids or, you know, like, oh, do you have any kids? That's not something men get asked a lot about. Whereas I get asked like, oh, are you married? Do you have kids? Quite frequently. It's like, no. And then it's uncomfortable. You know, it's like, oh, what's wrong with you kind of face or like sympathy face. And it's like, no, this is a choice that I've made. You know, I'm not like I would it would be a little bit different, I think, if I was like out and about hitting the town on in the clubs or like really trying hard at Tinder and I wasn't able to find anybody, then maybe it would be like, oh, poor girl. (laughs) It's all she ever wants. But it's just not something that I don't know. Like, yeah, it's controversial to say this kind of stuff, I guess. And that's what's hard about it that, you know, there's this expectation on me and I don't know how to like grapple with the fact that am I going to wake up one day and regret this or is that just what society has made me think is going to happen? Do you know what I mean? Anyway, that one might have been a bit of a confusing one for you. All right, next up, number four, I need to wear makeup and have a tan to look pretty and more presentable. Now, I talked a little bit about this in the Emily Sky episode last week, um, but this is definitely something that is deeply ingrained in me, obviously from, you know, society, beauty magazines, my fam, my mum, you know, like the women in my life, you know, even now, like I'll add a filter to look more tanned on Instagram. Um, And I've actually just tried to change the filters that I use now on the regular to just be sort of more my skin tone. But, um, you know, there is that deep rooted belief that like you have to be wearing makeup and be tanned to be more presentable, which is obviously like a load of bull. Do men look more presentable? Do they have to wear makeup? Like that's a joke. And then obviously this tan thing is like it's healthy. And then when you're pale, you look sick. You know, where does all of that come from? And, you know, it's something, it's interesting because like obviously centuries and centuries ago, it was like the lighter your skin, you know, the paler you were, the better because it meant that like you weren't outside doing hard labor. And so it was like, I don't know, like I'm sure there's a lot of racist, you know, back end on that as well. But, you know, it's even like, you know, back in the day where it was like women who were um, chubbier were seen as more desirable because it meant that they had wealth and they could afford to eat. Whereas like women who were skinny meant that they were poor because they, you know, couldn't afford to eat food. And so like in the day it was more desirable to be more voluptuous. Obviously that's changed now. But yeah, it's like the wearing makeup thing. It's definitely like in there. And I just don't think that I would ever turn up to a client, an important client meeting, not wearing makeup. I've definitely gotten over the tan thing. That's something I'm definitely better, getting better and better at, but still like, I think in summer I'll probably put on a fake tan and I have a gradual tanner there that I keep looking at on my bench thinking like, Oh, I'll put that on tomorrow, but I'm not putting it on cause I'm lazy. Um, but I bought it recently cause I wanted to have like a bit of a healthier glow. That's fucked. (laughs) I'm the one out there talking about how like we shouldn't be glamorizing tanning. Obviously I'm talking about, you know, baking in the sun, but still as a whole, the whole conversation that you need to be tanned makes you more appealing and prettier or like look healthier is a load of bullshit. And I need to get it out of my brain 
And the same with the makeup thing, you know, like why does my brows being done make me look better to the client? It doesn't make me any more capable at doing my job, you know, but unfortunately that is the world that we live in. And if my staff came to work to a client meeting without any makeup on, I'd probably be thinking to myself, oh my God, why, why doesn't she have her makeup on? She doesn't look presentable. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't say that to them, but I'd probably be thinking it. That's fucked. I don't think that about my male staff, you know, and so that's definitely something that I have to unlearn as well. I don't know how, like none of these things do I really know how to unlearn. Like obviously with the anti-racism one, that is about education and I need to widen my range of things that I'm consuming, you know, um, and I need to go out and seek this kind of content to be educating myself. But I don't know how to fix the like the baby marriage thing and to change the way I'm thinking about that. I don't know how to fix the way that I think about makeup because it also is like the anti-racism thing is a little bit easier because it's more about your own opinions and the action that you're taking. Whereas with makeup, if I just decide tomorrow that makeup isn't essential, unfortunately my clients still see it that way and so what their perception is is very important you know, for my business. So that is really reliant on people's perceptions as well. But it's definitely something that we need to start looking at. And I've definitely changed the way I do my makeup. I wear minimal kind of makeup now. Like I wear like more of a skin tint, a bit of blush and highlighter, brows and um, mascara. Whereas before I'd be doing like a full thick layer of makeup, eyeshadow, eyeliner, lashes, all that stuff when I go out, lipstick, like a whole thing, and it just was caked on. You can check out my old YouTube videos where I told Chaw you how to cake it on, um, and I would be trying to cover up my freckles and, like, all that kind of stuff, whereas now I just go for more of a bare bones, kind of just looking awake kind of vibe. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know how to unlearn that. If anybody has any ideas, let me know. Um, but it, it is definitely hard when people's perception is very important to your business as well. On my weekends and dinners and things like that, I don't care about people's perceptions. I go shopping, I go out to dinner, I do whatever I want. I do that often without makeup on. I would say 90% of the time I'm not wearing makeup outside of work. So that's not something that I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned about not wearing makeup on Instagram. Um, you know, I will often be on Insta stories without any makeup on. That's not the concern. Where my issue is, is more around work. Um, and also that that niggling feeling in the back of my mind that I want to start putting on the gradual tan, but like, I guess it's okay because it's not a real tan and it's not damaging my skin, but then it's also perpetuating the idea that tan is better than light skin, you know? So it's all of these things are confusing, guys. I'm just putting them out there because I don't want this podcast to be like, I know it all. You know, everything is black and white. I know everything. I don't. So much is shades of grey. I'm learning and I want you to know that I'm just like you, whereas I'm confused. I can be this, I can be that, I can be both this and that, you know, and I'm trying to, I think the main thing that I want people to get out of this podcast is that it's about assessing things, sitting down and thinking like, yeah, I do think crying is a weakness and why do I think that and what can I do to fix it? You know, and like really not going through life, again, not coasting through life, just thinking like I am who I am and this is set in stone. No, actually you can grow and change and, you know, 
be better, be worse, all different kinds of things. And but it's about really sitting down and reflecting. And so that's what you know this podcast episode specifically is more about because I'm trying to like assess the things that I need to unlearn. Okay. And finally, number five, when boys are mean to you, it means they like you. Now this is like the old adage, right? We get taught from a young age that if boys are teasing you or they're like pushing you in the playground, it means that they like you and they have a crush on you. And what damaging messaging that is to send to young girls. No wonder women grow up wanting the fucking bad boy. No wonder where we settle for getting treated like shit. No wonder when he hits you for the first time, you think it's okay, he's going to change. He does love me. Of course, we're sticking around for this bullshit because it's what we're taught from such a young age, not to expect more. That's so bad. I have the worst complex for bad boys. If a guy is cocky and arrogant, I couldn't be more attracted. Nice guy, not for me. Nice guy, that's lame. I don't like that. I want an asshole. Why do I want an asshole, guys? Why would I want that? You know, and obviously I'm like, as I said, I'm like single and happily single, but obviously I still have like a type of guy that I gravitate towards. Um, You know, like why nice guys finish last in my eyes or every time? Like what the hell? And it's like, you know, oh, I think about the TV shows that I watch and the guys that I like the most, you know, you think about Vampire Diaries. Any, any Vampire Diary fans out there? I know Emily Sky loves Vampire Diaries. We used to chat about that all the time. God, I wish that would come back. And you know what? I didn't like Stefan to begin with. I loved Damon because he was the bad boy. But then there was a whole season where Stefan became the bad boy and all of a sudden I found myself liking Stefan again. You know, like what is wrong with me and other women? Like why are we being taught that a guy treating you badly is the way that he shows you love? You know, like that is such damaging content to be telling a young girl. And then it's like consistently we grow up thinking that we can change these men because they really do love us, but then we can turn them into these nice guys, which obviously never fucking works. Like more power to you if you were able to do that. But it's not like a great goal to have in mind to change somebody. You know, and so that's definitely something that I have to unlearn that I, and it's like, how do you unlearn what you're attracted to? Do you know what I mean? And like, I obviously don't know a lot about um, like domestic violence statistics and what if girls are taught this from a young age, if it does impact the partner that they're with, I have no idea about any of that stuff. I'm not going to be speaking like I'm an authority on that, but I can only imagine that if you know a boy's pushing you in the playground repeatedly and then your mum is saying to you, it's because he likes you, that that can be dangerous when you become an adult. I'm actually, one of my best friends is... Um, you know, she's worked for many years in the domestic violence space and I'm actually going to have her on as a guest. She's from Sydney, so she does visit regularly, obviously not during COVID times, but hopefully later on in the year I'll be able to have her on a, as a guest to talk about that because it's something that I'm very passionate about, um, something that I'm so interested in learning about as well. And so I think that will be a very informative episode for us because some of the things she has told me are just like truly eye-opening. And when I hear people say, you know, like, that would never happen to me. I'd just leave. I always think, wow, if you only knew 
So that's something that I definitely want to open all of our eyes to a little bit more because that kind of conversation about like that would never happen to me, I wouldn't stand for that. That kind of um, mentality is very um, dangerous and um, not helpful and supportive at all. So I'd like to really dive deeper into that later on in the year. But anyway, so I, I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert on that. Like what I said, obviously girls getting pushed in the playground then leads to them in domestic violence. I don't know that there's any evidence to prove that, but it's just something that to me seems like, you know, it's probably not a great learn learned skill when you're young to be taught that guys being mean to you and bullying you is a sign of love. So that's something that you need to change. But yeah, how do you change what you're attracted to in a man? I don't know. Is it is it about does it I it rings a bell like coming into self-worth as well, that like you're worth more than that? I don't know. Obviously I'm not saying that I'm attracted to a, a, a man who's aggressive or, you know, angry or violent or anything. Mine was more around like a cocky, assholey kind of guy that's like a smart ass to you. That's what I was always attracted to. So yeah, that's an interesting one. I, again, I'm just here to throw it out there and I don't know how to, you know, fix these things, but it's things that I need to think about more, you know? Um, and then I wanted to throw in like a funny one that I was in the office the other day trying to think of ones. Everyone was saying things like, you know, that you can't go swimming until after you finish eating for 30 minutes or that if you swallow a watermelon seed, a watermelon will grow in your stomach and like all of those kinds of things that we're taught. And I wasn't taught really any of those things or like apparently you can see better when you eat carrots or something. I was never taught any of that stuff. But what I was definitely taught that I still actually do to this day is don't shave above the knee. And like I shave halfway up my thigh so basically, if I'm wearing shorts or a skirt, whatever that length is, that's how far I shave up. But I have never shaved all the way like up to my hips ever. And I asked the girls in the office, they were like, yeah, I shaved the whole way up. And I was like, what? Oh my God, I'm just realizing that like my mum taught me this from such a young age and I've always just continued to do it. And like, I'm not going to change it because I'm not like ashamed of like the very light, light hair that I have on my upper thigh. But I just thought it was so funny that your mum teaches you you can't do that because it'll grow back really thick and disgusting. The My lower thigh doesn't have any thick and disgusting hair, so I don't know why my upper thigh would. And I remember my mum would be like, no, you can't shave your legs because it grows back so thick. And she used to make me wax my legs. So fucking painful. But I did that for years. And actually, funny story, the... um the waxing lady, because when you book in, often they'll be like name. And so you'll say Mangan and they'll be like first name Courtney. And so when I did that ever since that first time, she would just call me Mangan as though it was my first name every time I went there. So that was interesting. But um, yeah, so that's something that I think our mums have taught us from a young age, like don't shave, it'll come back thick and prickly and then don't shave above your knee. Like we're all nuns. <laughs> Anyway, so that's something that I need to unlearn. But you know what, to be honest, at this point, like, what's the difference, you know? Anyway, so I think that that's it for those topics. Those were my five. So it was crying as a weakness, I don't see colour, marriage and babies, the meaning of life, makeup and tan make you prettier and more presentable. And when boys are mean to, it means they like you. So those are the kind of things that I'm working on. As I said, like everything is a work in progress. We're growing together. Um, I'd love for you to come into the Facebook group and tell me what the things are that you think you need to unlearn funny or serious, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, But let's move on now to the attitude of gratitude. And what I'm grateful for at the moment is my bed. 
And some weeks it's going to be big things and some weeks it's going to be little things. And this week it's a big thing. My bed. Oh my God. So important. I have talked about how sleep is a priority to me. And I just love sleep and my bed so much. I don't understand people that like can't like go to bed and sleep. Like, you know, I, I feel bad for insomniacs and stuff. It's not, obviously not their fault, but I just love it so much. At the moment, my immunotherapy is kicking my ass. I am wrecked all of the time. I'm always so tired, even though I'm getting ample sleep. And so when I hit my, like my head hits my pillow at the end of the night, I'm so happy, guys. <laughs> I literally am just like, oh my God, this is the best part of my day, (laughs) which is really sad because I'm not even conscious for like all that time. But I just love sleeping in my bed and I'm just so grateful that I have a really comfortable bed. I remember years ago, I used to have like a horrible mattress when I didn't have much money to buy a good one. And what a difference a good mattress makes. Guys, if you can, can afford it or if you can save up for a good mattress, it makes the world of difference. So I think that something that you're doing for like seven to eight hours a day, you need to prioritize having a good mattress because if you wake up and you're like your body's sore or you wake up on the wrong side of the bed because you like haven't had a good sleep because your mattress is shit, it can really set your whole day off into a bad spin. You know, I should know I wake up bloody tired all the time, but when I used to wake up feeling refreshed before cancer treatment, I bloody loved my mattress. That's what I'm grateful for today. And this week's thought of the week is a quote from Richard Raw. Transformation is often more about unlearning than learning. I thought that was very poignant for this week. Anyway, thanks for listening to this week's episode. I'll be back every Tuesday with a new app. But in the meantime, make sure you keep up with me over on IG at Courtney Mangan and at She Was The Fire. And of course, come into the Facebook group and have a chat. And don't forget to subscribe and share. Bye.